Okay, I am in my garden doing some maintenance work on my tomatoes and I thought that I would record myself uh, talk to you all a little bit about what I'm up to. So on my land, I have two garden spaces that I grow vegetables in. Um, and the garden I'm in right now is what um, we call our upper garden. And it's called the upper garden because <laughs> it's at the top of the hill that our house is on. So it's right, um, right outside of our kitchen, actually. And in this garden this year, we are growing tomatoes. We have probably about one, two, three, four, five, 15, maybe 16 tomato plants in our upper garden. And then we also have Swiss chard, rosemary, spinach, basil, beans, and peppers, um, and marigolds as well as a few other random plants and some onions that grow wild in here, all in our upper garden. And right now, I'm working on my tomato plants. So one of the challenges of growing tomatoes is that they are very susceptible, especially tomatoes in Minnesota, are very susceptible to uh, fungus that we call blight. And it shows up as teeny tiny little brown spots at first little brown spots on the leaves and then those brown spots those speckles grow and multiply and cover the whole leaf and kill the entire stem and so you can really tell when a stem has blight on it because not only is it covered in these brown speckles but also um there will be no flowers at the end of that stem and no fruit, no fruit can grow on it. And the fungus is um, very, very viral. So as soon as you see it show up in your garden, you have to cut the stems off that you see the speckles on. Sometimes the blight actually gets into the, the root stem of the plant in which case you just know that that plant is going to die. And sometimes that happens after it's already started producing actual tomato fruits. Um, so I've got one that I just was working on like that, where I was able to get all of the... Uh, I was able to cut off all the stems that have active blight on them, but then the actual root stem of the plant is covered in those brown speckles. And it's already got these beautiful um, tomatoes growing on it that will probably ripen before the plant itself is completely dead um, but it's a problem because it means that you know I've got to make this hard call right or we I should say we because Sam and I do all of our gardening together um, we manage the garden together but we have to make this hard call like okay we're gonna leave this tomato in the garden that this tomato plant in the garden that has blight on it and has blight in the stem and we know how um, viral this thing is but it also already has fruit on it and we know that most of the tomatoes already have blight most of the plants in the garden already have blight of some kind we have a few that don't which probably means that that particular type of tomato that we're growing is less susceptible to it 
Um, but once it gets in your garden, it's really, really hard to stop it from happening. In fact, this is why people tend to rotate where they grow tomatoes. If you have a small to medium sized garden, it's a really good idea to every year rotate where you're growing tomatoes, whether it's like planting them across the garden from where you planted them before or planting them in an entirely different garden space. Um, cause it can actually take years for, it take, can take years for the soil to kind of clean itself of the blight. <sighs> yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Fungus is so interesting and viruses are so interesting. They're, um, so agile and it's funny to be, you know, in this process of trying to cut away parts of any of these plants that are sick in the hopes that the plant as a whole will survive long enough to get what we need from it. And it's amazing to see these plants, they're so tall. Some of these plants are as tall as I am. They're huge and they're already producing so much fruit. They're very abundant, very beautiful. And yet there's this sickness that's also happening inside of them. Um, so it's an interesting thing to just kind of notice and sit with that like we can have abundance, we can have beauty, we can have a situation where it looks like everything's okay. And in a way, everything is okay. Oh dear. I just cut off a stem that had fruit growing on it. That was a bummer. That was stupid. Uh, yeah, so in a way, everything is okay. And yet, you know, maintaining this garden requires like pretty constant vigilance in order to care for, you know, in order to make it like okay enough. <laughs> to get through the season. I have a friend in the garden with me, my kitten, my cat, Frog. So we had a problem where for a while our cats were really enjoying like pooping in the garden. And that was really upsetting. And <laughs> so we tried a few different things, including, um, trying like, uh, just, uh, spreading dried rosemary all through the garden, which is supposed to be really like noxious to cats. Um, but then once we were actually planting the garden this spring, we decided to cover the entire garden in fabric and then hay to keep down the weeds. So, cause that's always the hardest thing to keep up with when you're gardening is like weeds. Weeds are the worst. Weeds. Only way you can define them is things that you don't want to grow in your garden. <laughs> So it can be really hard to keep up with. So we put all this hay down and then we spread all this like dried rosemary and then the cats stopped pooping in the garden, but they started, they started napping in the garden. So now almost every time I'm out here, one of the cats will just be out here with me napping in the hay and they're very like insistent about it so like I just stepped over a frog and you know cats are fairly jumpy creatures and she was just like I'm not moving I'm chilling this is where I'm taking my nap right now she just had babies she just a couple of weeks ago had a new litter of four kittens 
one of which died. Like, that's how I knew she had had kittens, was I found a dead one on the porch when I walked outside in the morning. Then I went looking, because I was like, okay, one dead kitten, but where are the others? And I went into our kiln shed. We have a shed on our land just off of our house that has a uh, gas fire kiln in it. And she had arranged the rest of the little kittens on like an old cushion that's inside the shed. And they're all healthy and doing great. One of them, even a few days later, actually survived a, a, some really bad behavior on the part of our dog, Bran, who got a hold of it somehow and then was just like tossing it in the air with his mouth and throwing it all over the place and really roughing it up. And I rescued this kitten from his maw and it's amazingly still alive <laughs> so they're little they're wee they haven't opened their eyes yet but they're looking healthy looks like they might survive and that's always a treat when life blooms and then survives the onslaught of like what it means to actually be in the world all right okay I think I've probably suitably explained what I'm doing in here, cutting out all this blight. That is my first report from the garden, one of the apocalypse survival skills that I'm always learning, the skill of caring for a garden. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a master gardener <laughs> or even close to that. Um, but I've been gardening now for, well, since I moved to Minnesota, so about eight years. I've been learning to garden, working through all of my resistance to this activity. You know, I've talked about on previous episodes how, for me, um, learning to garden and working through my resistance to gardening has been a part of my ancestral healing journey, ancestral healing work of really trying to be in relationship with the land in a healthy way that's by choice. And it's hard. I get frustrated. I hate it sometimes. I hate doing it. I hate feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. I hate making mistakes and ruining crops, which I've definitely done my share of in the past and will do again. I hate that it doesn't come instinctively to me and that sometimes it really feels like a slog. Um, like all those parts of it, the part of it that's like, um, you know, it, it triggers me in terms of the, you know, I like to sit back into the things that come easily to me, just like everybody does. Um, I don't like to fail. I especially don't like to try and then fail. <laughs> I don't mind failing at something if I wasn't like actively trying really hard to do it right. Um, <laughs> but it really sucks to fail when you're trying really hard to get it right. So, yeah, so it's work. It's definitely real work in my life. Um, but I believe that it is one of the most critical, the skill of growing your own food is like one of the most critical skills that we can have right now one that we will all be ultimately called into at some point. Um, so when I sit with that reality, 
I can kind of set aside the part of it that's challenging to my ego and say, all right, Autumn, just get it fucking done. Stop complaining. <laughs> all right, that's my report from the garden. Peace out. Okay, so the last time that I talked to you all about my garden, I was in the middle of doing maintenance on my tomatoes. I thought that today I would talk to you again because I am about to freeze a bunch of sauce that I just made from the very same tomatoes that I was doing maintenance work on a few months ago. So, or actually it was probably just a few weeks ago that I did that recording. So, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the work of preserving um canning and preserving is what we often call this work. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to preserve garden food. Um, and they sort of roughly fall into three categories, canning, freezing, and drying. Um, and different fruits and vegetables lend themselves um, better or worse to different methods <laughs> of preservation. So for instance, um, peppers, great example, actually peppers lend themselves really well to drying. Um, well, certain kinds of peppers, chili peppers, peppers that are spicy peppers that you might want to sort of crack up in their dry form into, uh, some olive oil and garlic that you're cooking on your stove to add a little spice to whatever sauce you're making. Um, so, um, you know, various kinds of chili peppers lend themselves really well to drying. Peppers generally do not lend themselves well to, uh, freezing, um, in a cooked state. And so, you know, over the years I've done a lot of experimentation with various ways to preserve peppers and have found that, um, you can sort of get away with, um, fresh freezing peppers, but if you try to like cook them in some way, like saute them and then freeze them, when you finally go to use them, uh, thawing them, once they've been cooked and then frozen, they end up quite gunky and are kind of only useful if you're adding them to a soup. Um, so just as an example, um, the vegetable that I tend to focus the most on doing um, preserving with, uh, out of my garden is tomatoes. Um, <clears throat> and the way that I tend to do that is by making various types of tomato sauces and then either canning or freezing those sauces. Um, my favorite way to do this is like the simplest way to do it, which is to, um, harvest tomatoes from my garden and, um, slice them and then puree them and then cook them in large pots with a lot of olive oil and sauteed diced garlic um, and then just adding salt, a lot of salt and pepper um, and right 
at the end of the cooking process, I add a whole bunch of fresh basil also for my garden. We always plant tomatoes and basil together because they actually are assistive to one another. They're pretty symbiotic as far as plants go. Um, and then they also happen to taste great together, which is often the case. Plants that are symbiotic with one another also often happen to eat well together. Um, so that's just a basic marinara sauce. Um, and I will often do a basic marinara sauce or I'll do a similar preparation of tomatoes, garlic, and oil, and then add um, chili peppers and make an arrabbiata sauce. Um, so no basil in that sauce, just peppers. Um, and those are the two sauces that I tend to make for preserving because as very basic sauces, they work well in a variety of dishes that I might make over the course of the fall, winter, and spring. So, you know, you can crack open a can of tomato sauce, of marinara sauce, and use it for any kind of pasta. You can also use it for making, you know, an eggplant parmesan or, um, you know, you can even sort of figure out a way to use it to make some kind of soup. So it's very versatile sauce. Um, so um, I typically will can my uh, sauce instead of freeze it. And I'll explain the difference shortly. Um, but tonight I'm actually um, going to be putting my sauce into very large jars and freezing instead of canning. And that's because I actually don't have all of the materials that I need for canning tonight. So I have to do it the way I'm doing it. Um, so canning versus freezing. So um, the easiest way to explain canning is that um, it's a process of putting some sort of cooked or prepared um, sauce or jam or what have you, soup, um, into a glass jar with a uh, metal lid and a ring um, and heating that jar with the lid on top of it in such a way that the lid seals. Um, and if you do that successfully, it means that whatever is inside that jar will keep um, will not go bad, will not rot, will not mold until you are ready to actually crack it open and use it for whatever you're going to use it for. Um, and there's a few different ways to, um, to affect that, the level of heat that actually causes the lids to seal. Um, and various methods require various different types of equipment. But the basic equipment that you need is to have large glass jars um, the brand of jars that I tend to use is called ball. Um, and they also make corresponding lids and rings. Um, so if you've ever like, you know, um, bought organic honey at the store, usually it comes in one of those thick jars that has a, a screw top ring that comes off and then you have to peel off the metal lid. That is the type of, um, ring and lid that I'm talking about. <clears throat> and those, the lids are very specially made so that, when the right level of heat is applied to them, they actually um, seal against the glass jar. So, um, so various ways to do that include um, uh, what's called water bathing, um, putting, putting the jars with whatever is inside them, whatever it is that you're preserving, whether it's sauce or jam or whatever, um, and applying um, the 
the lid and the ring to the jar with the stuff inside it and then placing it into a bath of boiling water, boiling hot water for a period of time. And the amount of time um, actually does depend on what it is that you're preserving. Um, so it can vary between like, you know, 10 minutes to 15 minutes, to 20 minutes, depending on what it is that you're actually preserving. Um, and then you take, um, the jar and the lid out of the water bath and leave it to just sort of cool off. And one of the kind of fun, cool effects of this process is that you can actually hear the lids seal. Um, they make this popping sound when they're, when they actually have sealed fully, um, so the water bath is one way to do it. Another way to do it, one of the ways that I tend to do it because I find it to be easier, is actually placing all of the sealed jars um, into a pan that's filled with about an inch of water and then placing that pan with all the jars in it into the oven, which is heated to like a 285 degrees or so, and just leaving them in the oven for about two hours um, and then pulling them out and they again, they, they will seal, um, after a period of time, it doesn't happen right away. Usually the sealing happens over the course of the next hour after you remove the lid, the, the jars, either from the oven or from the water bath, depending on what method you use. Um, and if you're canning jam, then what you would often do, whether it's a water bath or whether it's in the oven is you would actually, and actually with jam, one of the kind of fun things about jam, because it's, because when you're making jam, regardless of the type of fruit it is, you have to heat it to such a degree before you actually put it in the jars that oftentimes the heat of the jam itself will help to seal the lid against the jar. So oftentimes I'll just make a big vat of jam. I'll, I'll apportion it into all the jars that I have. And then I will just put the lid on, screw the ring on, and then turn the jam over on top of itself. Um, and the heat of the jam against the lid is what causes it to seal. So I'll leave it turned upside down for like an hour and then turn it right side up. And then over the course of, you know, the next 15, 20 minutes, I'll hear all the lids pop, 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 pop. Um, so that is, that's one of the, um, one of the favored ways of preserving sauces, jams, various things like that. And it's, definitely my preferred method um, because I have a spacious pantry in my basement and so I can can many many jars of sauces and jams and have them just lined up in my pantry uh, I don't actually prefer um, freezing because freezing takes up space in a freezer and I have two freezers I have a <laughs> actually I guess I kind of have three freezers I have the freezer that's attached to my fridge, which is in my kitchen. I have an upright freezer and um, uh, uh, a deep freeze freezer in my basement. Um, so I do have lots of freezer space, but you know, a lot of that space actually gets eaten up by meat. <laughs> and, I, and I like it to be filled with meat. So um, that's a story for another podcast. Um, so... Yeah, so like I said, I'm not doing the, um, I'm not canning tonight, I'm freezing. So what I've done, oh, important thing also to note about canning is that it's really important that um, all of the things that you're using are very, are sanitized, are clean and sanitized. So 
Um, so again, when I'm making jam or making sauce, I will, um, oftentimes put all the jars that I'm about to use and the rings, um, through the dishwasher at a high heat and set it to like sanitize. Or if I don't have time to do that, then I will, um, I will hand wash everything with hot soapy water. Um, so that's true whether you're freezing. I mean, you should do that if you're freezing as well, but it's especially important if you're canning because it's the lack of bacterial content in the jar, the ring, the lid, the sauce itself that actually assists the whole process, ensuring that it doesn't um, botulize or rot or go bad or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so right now what I'm doing is I've hand washed all of these jars and, oh, one other thing I should say about the canning lids is that, um, in terms of the process of canning itself, you can only use a lid once in terms of that, uh, heat sealing effect that it has. So you have to go you know, to usually they sell them at your local grocery store. Or, um, you know, if you have a sort of like farm and fleet store near you, they would all sell them in bulk. Um, but you have to actually buy the lids fresh. Rings you can use over and over again, but the lids have to be used fresh if you want them to seal. If it doesn't need to be sealed, like mine tonight don't need to actually seal because I'm putting everything in the freezer. But if they need to seal, then um, you do have to have completely fresh lids. And they still have to, even if they're fresh out of the box, they still have to go through a process of sanitizing by putting them in very hot water. Um, <clears throat> I'm explaining a lot of this stuff really fast. And actually, all of it is stuff that you can really easily learn, like, basically on the internet or from someone you know who does canning. Um, so right now what I'm doing is apportioning the sauce that I've made into um, a couple of of my ball jars and because I'm freezing and um, not canning tonight I actually have to be really careful about how much sauce I put into each of the jars I can't fill them to the very top because of the fact that they're going to be in the freezer you know once anything that has liquid of any kind in it once it goes into the freezer it expands and so if I overfill these jars then um, the jars themselves will actually crack open when they're in the freezer. Um, so I have to make sure that I fill them only, um, uh, you know, like a, a little less than full. Um, I usually give myself about a couple of inches from the top of the jar is where I stop in terms of filling. Um, <clears throat> and I'm doing right now I have two... Um, gallon sized jars that I've filled completely with sauce and I'm about to fill a couple of um, uh, quart sized jars as well. Um, I'm using, I've never known what this is called, but I'm using this kitchen implement um, that basically sets inside the mouth of the jar, but creates a wider um, opening so that I can like pour the sauce in without it spilling all over everything on the counter and all over the, the ring itself because I, or the, the mouth of the jar itself because I need the mouth of the jar to actually be completely clean. <clears throat> so you can hear me 
I'm like, I've got two different pots of sauce that I cooked and I'm getting all of the last little bits of sauce out of one of these pots before I switch over to the other pot. And both pots are filled with the same type of sauce. It's all marinara sauce. It's delicious. I tasted it. Always taste. <laughs> Always taste it before you're done. Um, and then what I'm going to do, again, because I'm freezing and not canning, and I don't have to worry about the bacterial aspect of this, um, what I'm going to do once I have these jars filled is just find a bunch of old rings and old lids, lids that have already used up their sealing capacity. And I'm going to put them onto these jars. These are all wide mouth jars, so it's going to be all wide mouth lids and rings. And then I'm going to um, either leave the sauce on the counter overnight so that it cools completely, or I will put, if I have enough room in my fridge, I might even put the sauce all of the jars into the fridge so that they cool completely before they go into the freezer. That's another one of the ways that you can um, ensure that your jars don't crack once they go into the freezer is by making sure that whatever the content is that's in those jars is actually completely cooled down um, because that process of going from very, very hot to freezing um, causes the expansion to happen in, in a a pretty unsustainable way. You can hear that. Oh my gosh. That's such a delicious sound. This is honestly one of my favorite activities in the summer. Even though it's hot and miserable, right? Like it's hot outside. I, my country home does not have air conditioning and it's been very humid in Minnesota. Even in August, it continues to be quite hot and humid in Minnesota. Um, and so it's been a really humid day. So having two pots of sauce cooking on the stove is like not ideal <laughs> on a day like today. And so I'm, I'm sweating. I feel gross. Um, but I'm also really happy because I find this activity to be so wholesome. It's just so wonderful to like, um, to watch and complete the transformation of seed to start to, you know, a plant that's growing tall in the garden to a plant that's blossoming flowers, which you know are going to become fruit, um, and then have those plants fully fruit um, and be able to harvest that fruit and then turn it into something else, something that you know... You know, I'm looking at these jars and I'm like, oh, it's going to be so fun three months from now when I'm like, oh, what am I going to do for dinner tonight? Oh, I'm just going to like crack open one of these jars <laughs> of delicious marinara sauce and use it for whatever I need to use it for. Um, it makes so much about my life like significantly easier, actually, being able to um, have a pantry full of food that was like cooked fresh and then frozen in a fresh state from my garden. Um, you know, we, in a good year, you know, probably about 30 to 40% of what we eat 
will come either from the land around us or from the gardens of friends um, or from um, meat that we have like either sustainably um, gotten via hunting um, or have like gotten from a local local farmer friend. Um, we have lots of friends who, we have friends who raise goats, we have friends who raise cows, um, and, uh, we have multiple people in our family who hunt deer, um, and so, um, you know, it feels like it's like our little, um, the small contribution that, you know, each family can make. This is our small contribution that we can make to like doing less harm to the planet is by actually um, working as hard as we can to ensure that as much of our food as possible that we're um, sustaining ourselves with is, is being brought into our home in a sustainable way and is not negatively impacting um, the world around us. So, um, so it feels really good. It's like a very... Um, it's a very wholesome activity. Um, and it also, I don't know, I'm a Sagittarius. So I like accomplishing things and it's nice to have like a clear sense of accomplishment, um, in relationship to gardening and preserving. And I think, as I've said before on the show, I'm actually, um, a lot more excited about the work of preserving food than I am about gardening. Like it's, it's been a journey for me to um, learn to actually enjoy gardening um, and, you know, to even feel like I'm in any way remotely, like, qualified to do it. <laughs> but, um, but food preservation is something that's always actually come really easily to me. Um, and it's work um, that I really enjoy. Okay, I'm about to put these lids and rings on these jars and let them cool down and then I'm going to put them in my freezer and then at some point in the next season or so I'll let you know how it all tasted thanks for listening good night <laughs>